So my plan in the coming weeks, guys, is to get into a series or get into a book of the Bible. So you know, over the last six weeks or so since I've been here, I've been doing some standalone sermons over the summer months. And so again, my hope uh, as September rolls around is to do a book and do a series. So I'm thinking about James. That's one of my favorite books. I'm thinking uh, maybe first or second Thessalonians, but just kind of I'm praying on that a little bit. But so I, I think over what we want is some continuity. And so right now I've been looking at some of the Gospels and looking at some of Paul's writings. And this morning we're going to look at a text from Exodus, but uh, but just. Hold your horses. We are going to get into a series, if that sounds good to you guys. Good? Awesome. Okay. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage uh, where God reminds His people that only He can fix their problems. Uh, every time my wife wants to talk, I jump right into fix-it mode. Most of, most of us as men do that, right? My wife wants to talk. There's a problem. Something's going on. But she just wants to process, but guess what I want to do, right? I want to somehow fix it. And it's not an uncommon response, right? And so as problems arise, I think there's this, this natural response this, that we're going to apply some human solution. We're going to say, I got this. Step aside. Let me take over, right? And so all throughout God's Word, we, we know that there are God-sized problems, right? Even represented in this room. This morning, in our church, we know that there are God-sized problems. And every problem is actually a God-sized problem, right? Because He's the only one that can fix our problems, correct? So, so think about the last time that you were in, a, in a, a predicament. Or maybe there was a problem. It could have been a money problem, or maybe a relationship problem. It could have been a, um, you know, maybe conflict within the church walls. It could have been a health problem, or whatever it might be. Um, and if you... If you thought to yourself, there's no way out, I have a pretty good sense and a pretty good suspicion that, again, that you probably tried to fix it, right? Often that's our first line of defense. Is like, something comes up and I got this. We may not say that out loud. Sometimes we don't say, I got this out loud. As people of faith, we believe that God is going to fix it. But oftentimes, our immediate response is, I got this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to see myself out of this problem, right? It's just human nature, right? Again, my wife wants to talk. There's a problem. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to fix it. So it's very much human nature. And so all throughout the Bible, we read story after story where humans could not fix a, a God-sized problem. you got Joseph. Joseph was left to die by his brothers and lived a life of slavery for many years. That was a God-sized problem. As David stood before Goliath, that was absolutely a God-sized problem, right? You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There didn't seem to be a great human solution there. Elijah in the desert, we read about him just a few weeks ago, that he's full of faith one minute, and the next minute he's um, crying out to God and saying, God, it's better for my life to end than to face my problem. That's the, the place that he got himself into. You had Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the belly of the fish or the whale, right? That was absolutely a God-sized problem. And again, this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Exodus where God's Word reminds us, where God reminds us that despite our own best efforts, our problems really are 
are so big that only God may fix it. So I want us to be reminded this morning that no matter what we're facing, only God may fix what we're facing. That's it. He is the only one that really provides a solution to our problems. Whoever big or small, only He may fix our problems. So, uh, Exodus. Exodus 14. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 14, 10 through 14. Again, Exodus 14, 10 through 14. Just as a side note, I'm using the NASB. And so we're going to, since you have that available to you right there in your, your pew Bible, so we're going to use that if that sounds good. I like the NASB. Uh, I've read the NIV a little bit from time to time and then the ESV. So, But I think we're going to stick with the NASB as, as much as possible. So I'll be reading from the NASB this morning. All right, verse 10. Exodus 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were coming after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to his people, or to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again, ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now, as I just read and as I just mentioned, that all throughout the Bible, we see some pretty significant predicaments for God's people. And this was absolutely one of them. If you remember the story, so God set His people free from slavery from the Egyptians, right? And so by the ten plagues, Pharaoh kind of finally waved the white flag and said, all right, Israelites, actually the Hebrews, all right, Hebrews, get out of here. That's enough. We've had enough. And there were, uh, the Israelites spent uh, approximately uh, two generations in slavery, many, many years in, in slavery, literal slavery. And so God directed his people from this life of slavery, set them free from the Egyptians to this very place where they have the Red Sea on one side and then some rugged mountains on the other side. So here they are on the shores of the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 13 tells us there were 600,000 men in the middle of this scenario. So that's not including potentially wives and children and livestock and everything else that would have accompanied. So again, the, the Israelites picked up and moved their entire community. The whole people group moved from Egypt. God set them free from their life of literal slavery. And here they are on the shores of the Red Sea. Again, they have their possessions. They have the livestock. It was young. It's old. And so they're standing in the middle of this place. Again, they've got the Red Sea on one side and rugged mountains on the other. And Pharaoh is barreling down. Also, uh, just before our text in Exodus 13, uh, the Israelites, 
the, the Bible tells us the Israelites left feeling pretty good about their circumstances. That they were actually armed for battle. Exodus 13 tells us that that wasn't just you know staffs and livestock. They were actually armed for battle. So here you had 600,000 men, not to mention you know wives and servants and kids, and many of them, most of them, were probably armed for battle. And in Exodus 14, it says the Israelites they marched boldly out of Egypt. So they were feeling really good about their newfound freedom. So they were armed and they marched out boldly. They were excited. I, I imagine they, they left Egypt with some confidence, some excitement, some hope. God's got something else for us other than this life of slavery. But as we just read in our text, you know, this, this initial excitement, it seems to be kind of short-lived. There was great anticipation, again, of, of this promised land, but this excitement seemed to be short-lived. So God had promised them the, um, their own land, a land flowing with, with milk and honey. So God promised them. That was the promised land, right? He said a, a land full of blessing, but Pharaoh changed his mind, right? He, so he set the Hebrews free, but there was this process in which Pharaoh realized, oh, no. I just lost all my slave labor. I lost all my people. And so Pharaoh changes his mind and says, we're going right back after those Hebrews. And we're going to, text isn't real clear, but either I think he had in mind either he was going to kill them or he was going to bring them back for a life of slavery. So again, here you've got the Israelites with the Red Sea on one side, nowhere to go that direction to the east, and then rugged mountains on the other side. They were in an absolute predicament. So, so Pharaoh loads up his uh, best men. The scripture tells us that he loaded up uh, 600 of his best chariots. And these chariots held, these are big chariots. These are not like uh, small little things. But these chariots held, um, one commentary I read said they held about 10 or more men. Men with spears and swords. These were big chariots. So you had 600 of his best chariots of his fighting Egyptians, again, coming after the Israelites. Again, it was either he was either going to end their life or he was going to take them back into a life of slavery. So that's the context that's happening. And you've got the Israelites, again, they were they just newfound freedom, but here they are again in the crosshairs of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army coming after them. So let's look at verse 10 one more time of our passage. So, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, again, on the very shore of the Red Sea, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians. Clearly, they became very frightened and cried out to the Lord. Israelites looked up, and all they saw was these 600 chariots and men coming at them. And the first thing that the Israelites did is, which I found really unique and interesting, and, and uh, is that they actually looked up. So I, I would say that the, the Hebrews had spent a whole lot of time traveling one direction, looking at that next step. But as they looked up over the horizon, I get this image that all they could see was this big cloud of dust and dirt and desert, this huge, huge mass of chariots and men coming at them. So 
I think while their eyes were on the immediate surrounding, as they looked up over the horizon, again, I, I can imagine this great dust storm coming at them and shouts and uh, rattling and, cl and clanking is what I imagine. Imagine this incredibly intimidating <clears throat> picture coming at them. Again, here they are on the seas of the red shore, but as they looked up out over the horizon, incredibly intimidating group of angry Egyptians coming at them. And it did what? It struck great fear in their hearts, right? Rightly so. Absolutely, rightly so. You know, everywhere they looked, you know, God's people, they looked, they saw desert, they saw mountains, they saw water. There was absolutely no way out. From a human perspective and human response, they saw a great sea, a great body of water on one side, mountains on the other, and the Egyptians coming after them on the other. They couldn't just change directions, right? They couldn't just pivot. Again, you probably had close to what was probably a million people or more. Again, livestock. You had all these, all their possessions all in one place. They couldn't just pivot. They couldn't just hide. They were absolutely stuck in the middle of a God-sized predicament. And so the first, the first thing I want to highlight from our passage this morning is this, is that taking your eyes off of God has consequences. Taking your eyes off of God has consequences. You, you know that if you live for any length of time in this life, that some of the most painful consequences to this life are often unseen. Sometimes my kids will say, well, Dad, what, what kind of consequences do you have? You know, they, they, may be a, they might get in trouble or discipline in our house, and they, they'll ask me, like, well, Dad, what kind of consequence? You seem like you don't ever get any consequences. Well, there's all kinds of consequences. You just don't see them. They just look a little bit differently. So, um, you know, the, the Israelites were gripped by extreme fear in this passage, and in this case, you know, and who, who can blame them, right? There was a great threat, right? The Egyptians, that was an incredible threat. You couldn't deny this threat coming directly at them. And the threat was real, right? It wasn't made up. It wasn't manufactured. They actually saw the threat coming at them. So this fear was justifiable fear, right? In the same way that if something was coming for us, we would feel fearful, right? That's a normal human response. The, our passage says that they were very frightened. The NIV says that they were terrified at the Egyptians coming at them. So this wasn't an unjustified response. It wasn't fabricated. It was a this internal response. You can imagine almost, you can see it probably on their faces and in their body language. We are in a predicament, a significant predicament. Again, the Red Sea on one side, mountains on the other, and the Egyptians barreling down on them. You know, I didn't mention this, but one estimate, um, one commentator said this, is that there was probably close to 5,000 soldiers Egyptian soldiers coming after them. And you had, again, Scripture doesn't tell us, but you had the Israelites were armed for battle. So you had 600,000 men, as the Scripture says, so I would just assume many of those were armed. But I like those odds, right? If this was a military battle, I think I would take the 600,000 over these 5,000. But, but what happens is that the Israelites, as they take their eyes off of God and out on the horizon, fear sets in. And again, they had every right to be frightened, right? They, they had nowhere to run. They had this big army coming at them, looking to take them back as slaves. 
And it became what, you know, what we know is this immediate kind of flight or fight scenario. And all the people went right to flight. What'd they say? They said, well, I see this predicament and it looks like our lives are over, right? They didn't say we're going to fight. They didn't say, you know, God's got something else for us. They went right to, oh, I guess our lives are over. We saw this, they saw this great threat and just went back into this place of fear dictating their response. You know, it's no secret that God made us as emotional beings, right? Right? We have emotions, right? Look at all that. We have anger, we have sadness, we have happiness. There's all kinds of different emotions that we can experience in any given day, in any given moment. God made us as emotional beings, and it's actually a good thing. And emotions tell us, um, I've always thought that emotions can tell us when our, our hearts are a bit off, and so when things are out of balance in our lives. Emotions tell us things, right? Sometimes it could be an emotion of sadness or anger. Or, but in this moment, Israelites, they felt very fearful, right? They're, they were very frightened. They were terrified. Um, I read this uh, a book a couple of years ago, and it was a really interesting nugget I read in this book. But the, the part of our brain that processes emotions, I think it's called the amygdala, I think. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's it, uh, is just uh, up the line than our cerebral cortex. So when information or when, when we begin to filter things, our amygdala, again, our, our place in, in which uh, emotions are processed in our brains, that happens first. And then the cerebral cortex that processes logic kind of kicks in. Does that, does that make sense? So think about the last time that you felt um, hijacked by your emotions, right? You can almost feel that kind of response. You've ever gotten you know, maybe angry or, or sad. Sometimes we can almost feel like we're, we're hijacked by our emotions. You know, we, we, something comes our direction or the scenario, and you can almost feel like you're taken over by your emotions. You ever felt that? I certainly have. And I, and I think in many ways that's really what happened, I think, with the, the Israelites here, is that they saw this great threat and their response was almost one in which their emotions were hijacked, right? Because God had already provided for them, right? So God had pulled them out of slavery. They witnessed the ten plagues, right? So they had witnessed God setting them free from slavery. God had, again, brought them to this place, armed them, gave them provision, gave them everything that they needed, but somehow in this moment, they thought their lives were over, right? They went to this place of absolute fear. And you, you can't blame them, right? They were, the threat was real. And, I, and, and it's hard to blame them for this response. And I, and I think part of what I see is that Fear took hold in the people partly because they took their eyes off of God's faithfulness. Again, God had already provided. He brought them to this place intentionally right here on the seas of the Red, the Red Sea. And they took their eyes off of God's faithfulness and their eyes went back on their circumstances, right? They went to this place of, oh no, our lives are over. Maybe God's not going to provide after all. So taking our eyes off of God has consequences. And sometimes those consequences are unseen. And if God provided for the Israelites yesterday, He was going to take care of their tomorrow, right? We know that. 
The book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. If he took care of us yesterday, he's going to take care of our tomorrow. And so taking our eyes off of God has consequences, and I believe that's part of what happened in this moment. The Israelites took their eyes off of their journey. They looked up on the horizon, saw this threat, and said, Oh, our lives are over. The, the second point I want to highlight from our passage is this, is that despite what we see, God's promises are true and His plans never fail. Despite what we see ourselves, God's promises are true and His plans never fail. I'm going to read verse 11 and 12 again. So here's what the people said to Moses. The people said this. They said, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert, out to the wilderness to die? Why did you bring us out of Egypt, Moses? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, is what the people say. And again, what, what appears to be just a matter of moments, the people seemingly go from great faith and freedom right back into this place of fear and blame. And they're willing to wave the white flag and settle for a life that really wasn't God's best, right? Oh, great. I guess our lives are over now. Why don't we just go back to where we were in slavery? It would have been better for us to live in Egypt and die and, and live a life of slavery. You know, as I was reflecting on our text a little bit, sometimes I think it's really easy to get to be real um, hard on the Israelites. Like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Ha! Huh. I, I think I probably would have done the same thing, right? I don't know how you might respond in this scenario, but I'm sure if I looked up and saw all these great angry Egyptians coming at me, I'm like, oh, great. My life is over, right? I've done that before in other scenarios and thought, well, this doesn't look like what I thought it would look like, so oh, God must not have his, my best interests in mind. So without a doubt, the people go, it seems like from this great place of, of freedom, and again, they marched out boldly. They were seemingly excited about this newfound freedom in a matter of moments. They're saying, God, it would have been better to go back where we were before. They were so fearful, they doubted Moses, that again, they were willing to go back to a, their old former life. I don't know about you guys, but I know that God's blessings are better than anything I can imagine. I don't know what my life would look like if I was writing my own story, if I was going to, you know, if I had it planned out. I don't know what my life would look like. Probably not nearly as good as it does if I was writing the story. And that's such a common response, right? Of, of life sometimes doesn't look exactly how we might think it might look, and we just assume that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. But God's blessings are better than anything that we could ever imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm glad that God does not give us, again, everything that we would have wanted, right? Everything that we would have, I'm sure would like, or I would like to be, uh, and if we're gonna trust in Him and believe that He's got a plan, a purpose for our lives, then whatever He's given us is of Him, right? Wherever we are today is precisely what He wants us to have. You know, before Jesus goes to the cross, Peter says, this can't happen, Jesus. He says, Jesus, you can't die. I'm not going to let that happen. 
And Jesus says what? He says, if you have in mind your desires, the desires of man, not the desires of your heavenly Father. And I am, I am a man that I am so glad that, you know, despite my limited understanding of God's will in my own life, that, that He has given me what I have today and that He has provided. And what I have today is precisely what He wants me to have. Romans 8.28 reminds us that all things work together for the good of those that love God for His glory and our good, right? And so the Israelites are standing here, and just again, they're assuming that the Egyptians coming at them, that their life is over, that what God has provided is is not good. And what our passage reminds us of this morning is that God's plans never fail, and that He will accomplish what He has set out to accomplish, despite the reactions or failures of His people. So here we are again with the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea, the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh on the other. Circumstances were looking bleak. And I, and I, have, to, I have to think that they were, they were really asking themselves, does God really have, again, my best interest in mind? Is this, does Moses really know what he's doing? Does God really say that I'm his child? You know, Is God going to take care of me? And that's precisely what they did in verses 11 and 12. Again, they, they said, I would rather go back to a life of slavery. I'd give up the freedom and blessings than face Pharaoh's army coming at me. You know, they lost, they lost sight of God's provision. They lost sight of God's provision in the past. They were willing to walk away from the future that God had promised them. Again, God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land. That promise was true. In this moment, they just couldn't see it. And the same thing today as, as believers, as modern-day followers of Jesus Christ. You know, if we claim to follow God's will, we must be willing to follow Him regardless of the uncertainty that we see today, right? We're not sure what tomorrow holds. And in the face of circumstances that make no sense, we have to be willing to embraces promises despite what we see or or hear or feel. Here's some of God's promises that I was reminded of this week, and I needed this reminder this week, and maybe you do too. Listen to some of God's promises. Psalm 9.9 The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in the times of trouble. Joshua 1.9 be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Galatians 6 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Hebrews 13 5. God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. James 4 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. I don't know about you, but I need to hear God's promises each and every day. I need to be reminded He's got my best interests in mind despite what I, what I see or feel or hear. I need to know that God loves me. I'm His child. And he's going to take care of me and His promises are true. And God's promises are perfect because He is perfect, right? 
God will never go back on his promises. You've got the Israelites standing here again, the Red Sea on one side, mountains on the other. Pharaoh's chariots coming this way, and he says, I've got a plan and a purpose for your life. I've got a promised land for you. But he says, hold on. I've always been kind of um, intrigued or interested in the, the 40 years that the Israelites wandered the desert. What an amazing, unique journey and season that was for the Israelites. It really wasn't God's design. Israelites wandered the desert for that length of time because they were a stiff-necked people, because they didn't trust the Lord, right? Because they didn't hear, they didn't affirm God's promises, they doubted Moses, they complained the whole time, they assumed God didn't have their best interests in mind. They wandered 40 years in the desert because of that. The desert experience was supposed to be very abbreviated. I think I read at one point... Um, it was just, and God's intention was a couple year time period, not 40 years. Some of you will, will maybe bust me on that. But, um, but I've always been really intrigued by this 40 years they spent in the desert. You know, again, the Israelites, they complained against their circumstances the whole time. And again, their consequences were really an entire generation, or more than one generation, spent 40 years wandering the desert, taking the same route over and over and over because they were slow to see, slow to hear God's commands. They didn't trust Him. And their consequence, their complaining, was, was not to receive God's good gift of the promised land. Again, a land for them with milk and honey. A good, promised, wonderful land for them sooner. So they spent 40 years wandering the desert whether it was about food or water or provision, the Bible records what uh, 15 official murmurings, what the Bible calls that, Com complaining and grumbling. They were complaints about, again, about God's people, primarily against uh, Moses and God's provision. There was this continual theme that the Israelites were, they were holding out for something else. They, they didn't want manna, they wanted meat. They complained about wanting uh, different water, better water, water that wasn't bitter. They complained about their journey. They complained about their leaders. They com even complained about not having a God they could see, and so they made a golden calf at one point. So complaining was a continual, continual theme in the life of God's people. And the consequence of complaining was wandering the desert for 40 years. And whether they realize it or not, you know, the Israelites weren't just simply complaining about Moses or Aaron, but it was about God. They were complaining about God's provision. God had provided everything that they needed. But they continued to murmur and complain. So as I read this text this, this week, I was just reminded of what, what a sobering thought that in my own life, and these, these things and these places and as I say, well, I wish I had something else or something different. Or why don't I have... I'm not complaining about the circumstance. I'm really calling into question God's provision, right? I'm lacking trust in the Lord that whatever He's given me is precisely what He wants to give me. And, and, and God and His unending grace and His mercy, God is a God of second chances. He's a God of 
infinite chances, right? You know, God could have said, all right, Hebrews, you've complained three times, three strikes, and you're out, right? He didn't do that. For 40 years, you know, God heard the murmurings and the complainings, but he was faithful anyway. He carried them along. He provided for them food and shelter and water despite what they couldn't see. And despite the complaining, God provided for them anyway. And as we as we sang this morning, we sang a song that... Um, Count your blessings. Name them one by one. That's something that we have to be willing to do each and every day, that we count our blessings, and that we're thankful for what the Lord has provided. Things may look different than what we would have thought. We may have the Red Sea on one side and mountains on the other, and maybe Pharaoh's chariots are coming at us from the other direction. But I think the anecdote complaining is, is taking a daily inventory of what we do have, Right? We're very blessed, so blessed. And so we have to be willing to take this daily inventory of thanking God for His faithfulness and for His daily provision. And thankfulness isn't really just a, a thankful for something, but it's thankful to someone, right? That the Lord loves us, that He cares for us. He's providing for our needs. I think most of us have a roof over our head and probably food in our fridge and at least you look like you have clothes on your back. So. so God has provided for us and in pretty immeasurable ways, amazing ways. James 1.7 reminds us that all good and perfect gifts come from above, coming down from your heavenly Father, the one who never changes. So if God is provider and sustainer of all of, his, of all the gifts, gifts to his children, and today what we have is precisely what he wants us to have. Again, no more or no less. The final point I want to take from our passage this morning is this, is that God desires your heart and not just your feet. God desires your heart and not simply your feet. Moses said to the people in verse 13, he said, Do not fear. Stand by, and you will see the salvation of the Lord today. <clears throat> the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. You know, stand by and keep silent wasn't just simply an opportunity for the Israelites to stand there and literally be sedentary or to keep silent with their voices. It was, it was really a call just to, to trust in God, right? to stand, be silent, to stop where you are. The predicament that they were in was a God-sized problem. They couldn't do anything about the middle of the problem they were in. Again, Pharaoh was coming after them. Huge sea, gigantic mountains. They couldn't do a thing about it. They had to literally stand there and watch the Lord provide. There was nothing that they could do in their power to see themselves out of the situation. And I think they're for us, you know, there are seasons and circumstances in this life that can, that can be so dire, so big, again, that there's nothing in our human power that, that can see us out of that situation. Yesterday I was in a situation where I felt all I could say was, Lord help. 
I got nothing. Lord, help. Maybe that's a daily prayer that you pray once in a while. I certainly do. Lord, help. And I think God often guides and directs His people into places of absolute dependence upon Him. God uses very unique ways to get our attention so we would stand still, keep silent, and watch the salvation of the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 The prophet Zechariah reminded God's people that they, they're working to build a new temple and it wasn't by their own human strength or ingenuity. The project was so big, it was so mighty, it was so lengthy, it was such a huge temple that God said, it's not going to be by your might or by your power, but my spirit. That's, those are words for us today. It's not by our own power or our own might that we can see ourselves out of the predicaments, or the problems, the things that we may be facing. Only the Lord will see us through. You know, God could have, He could have directed His people to a straight path to the promised land, right? God could have set them free from slavery and brought them straight to Canaan. But He didn't do that. Interesting, huh? That He brought them around a different direction, through the peninsula, Sinai Peninsula. He brought them through the desert. He brought them miles and miles away to the, to this actual spot right there, to the shores of the Red Sea. Again, God could have said, I'm going to direct you cloud by day, fire by night, right to the land of Canaan. Where it could have been easy, could have been simple, but God did not. He directed them on this path all the way to this moment, all the way right there on the shores of, Red, of the Red Sea. You know, the Israelites didn't just end up there, right? God brought them there. If God is in control, if He was their, if He was their deliverer, if He was to guide, God brought them to that spot right there. And what God was doing, I believe, in this was, was establishing a relationship with His children in this moment, with His people in this very moment. It wasn't just for their discomfort. It wasn't just for this moment to, to throw them into fear. But God was establishing a relationship with His people in, his, in this moment. Do you trust me? I provided for you yesterday. Do you trust that I will provide for you in this moment? I was talking with a, a good friend of mine. Uh, John is his name. and um, I was talking to him on the phone a few months ago. and um, John had to retire about two years ago, and John's wife got very sick. Um, she had a um, neurological disorder in which she was an active, vibrant young woman, and John had to retire and take care of his wife at home. John was a musician. He was a leader. He was a farmer, an incredibly able-bodied, just an awesome man. Served the Lord all of his life, but yet... Here he had the table at all of many of his dreams, many of the things that, that he loved to do. He was active in church, active in the community, farm full time. He had to stay and take care of his wife full time. And as I'm talking on, on the phone with John, you know, I could hear just great discouragement in his voice, and I'm listening and we're kind of just processing and talking. And um, I don't remember everything that John had to say, but but John said this as, as, as we were parting on the phone. He said, 
I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know the battle belongs to the Lord. That's precisely what I want us to be reminded of this morning, is that I don't know what tomorrow holds. None of us knows what tomorrow holds, but we know the battle belongs to the Lord. And the good news for us as followers of Jesus is that we don't have to wait for the Red Sea. We don't have to wait for these moments to cry out to Jesus that no matter what we face, no matter what we're facing today, we can cry out to Jesus today. In this moment, we can say, Lord, help. Nothing is too big for God. We know that. His Word says that nothing is impossible for Him. So no matter what we're facing, whether we see it as a God-sized problem or not, we know that we have a God that is bigger than any of our problems. We just need to simply stand firm, to be still, and wait for the salvation of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So before we close in song, let me pray for us. Again, I just thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to look at Your Word, God. And we know that nothing is too big for You. And so, Lord, as we face problems that are way beyond us, God, we feel like we have the Red Sea on one side and the mountains on the other, God, and we feel like we have Pharaoh barreling down on the other side, God, but there's nothing that we can do. So, Lord, we want to stand still before You. We affirm that You will take care of us. You will see us through. Salvation comes through You, Lord, and Your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we cast our burdens upon You, knowing that You care for us. You love us, and You're going to take care of us, God. So, God, we know that, again, no matter what problem we're facing, we cannot fix it. We cannot do it. So, we ask you to take take our problems, Lord. Take our burdens. May you see us through, Lord. We stand before you. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, God, and give us a good rest of our afternoon as we go out from here. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.